you know that speech in Independence Day where Bill Pullman does his "We will not go quietly into the night." <laughs> I would love it if Tyrion did use that. Like, if he, if he had got up on his horse and gone, "We will not go quietly into the night." <laughs> Today is Lannister Day. No. No? Anybody? (laughs) Lancel Lannister comes stumbling in, doing his great sort of lost, lost, the battle is lost. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode nine of Shark Live Royal's coverage of A Clash of Kings by George R.R. Martin. Uh, this is the second book in the uh, Song of Ice and Fire series, or if you're sort of more into your TV, uh, the Game of Thrones series. Uh, I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. And Dave, this is it. We've finally gotten to a badass battle. Yes! Because, yes, because this next part is called Blackwater. It's Blackwater! Oh, this is so exciting. After so many fake-outs and missteps and George Martin, you know, claiming that there's going to be a battle scene and then there's a shadow baby instead, he finally, (laughs) finally puts his money where his mouth is. (laughs) Yeah, so this is is probably around about 60 pages of just people kicking ass. Um, It's very manly. And uh, there's not a lot of... uh, there's not a lot of finesse in it, but it's it, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It is it is the bad boys too of Game of Thrones <laughs> chapters, too. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Matt, because um, let's be honest, this shit just got real. <laughs> um, if you're wondering sort of what it is that we do, if you're coming to us for the first time, um, we take a book uh, on Chartley Royal and break it down into a, a number of parts, and then we sort of read. We, we give you a section to read every week and then we discuss that section at the end of the week, which is what we're doing now. So this is the ninth part of, Ga- of Clash of Kings, so we're pretty much almost at the end of the book now. And um, it roughly follows in, in tandem with what's going on in the TV series, but this is primarily about the book, um, although we do sort of compare the two quite a bit. Shall we get stuck into it then? We shall. Let's go, we'll start off with, so this this goes from uh, page 733 if you read in the paperback, which is a chapter about Sansa, which begins, they'd been singing in the sept all morning, and goes as far as page 786, about, which is a chapter about Daenerys, which begins, she was breaking her fast on. So once you get to that chapter, you can stop reading. And that's as far as we're covering today. So Sansa, to start, um, <laughs> after building it up, as like, oh, this is this kick-ass section of the book. We begin with the sentence, they've been singing in a sept all morning, which suggests it's not going to be the most exciting chapter, but you would be wrong to think that, wouldn't you? Well, you would, but I, I, I like, because last time you said that the, the right way to uh, read this section of the book was listening to Mezzanine by Massive Attack, which was a great tip, oh, yeah. by the way. This is absolutely <laughs> the way that this should be read, is with, like, dark pulsing, all of that in the background. It kicked ass, but... It did make me kind of go a bit more pastoral, a bit more in the background. I just had this image of a cathedral full of people just going, All things bright and beautiful, all creatures. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really the sort of yeah. kick ass tone that I was looking for. <laughs> 
Well, I suppose the reason they're, they're all singing in a septal morning is because they're basically praying um, for the battle to go the way of the city. You've basically got a collection of a, a terrified population in this city waiting to see who's going to win this battle. It's a siege. You've got Stannis's army on the one hand, which is trying to take the city, and you've got Joffrey's army. Or, or Tyrion's army, if you're going to be, you know, he's the real power behind the throne, trying to defend him. And you've got these poor people in the middle who are thinking, you know, <clears throat> it basically, if Stannis wins, what's going to happen? Is, is he going to sack the city? Is everyone going to get killed? Is he going to start burning people left, right and centre? Because we've heard all these terrible, terrible tales about him. And you really get a sense, especially in this build-up, just of the terror, not just amongst the soldiers who are going to fight, but the people who are going to be involved as well. Mm, mm. And he's really good with a lot of, like, he doesn't use very many words to do it, but he does give you a sense of this is about more than all the people that we've met who are generally the people on horses, and you do get a sense of this terrified population. I don't know about you, but it really made me feel the kind of claustrophobia of it as well you've got these tall stone walls and you've got an you know a terrifying army outside there's no information getting in or getting out and all everybody inside knows is that they're very very likely to die and it's like fuck just once again like he opens up the lens a little bit and you just see so much more it's great Sansa is uh is praying for some of the people who are going to be involved in this. Um, interestingly, um, she prays for the Hound, um, and she says, save him if you can, um, and a gentle the rage inside him. And she prays for the Hound, but there's no prayer for Joffrey. Hmm. Um, do, what did you make of that? Well, I, I mean, her interaction with the Hound's been dead interesting, hasn't it? Because it's, hmm. he's... he's terrifying but also weirdly kind of tender around her like he seems to see in her idealism something that he he is desperately sad to have lost um and it seems like that feeling is a little bit uh, reciprocated like she mm. she certainly seems to see humanity in him which basically nobody else ever sees you know even the person to whom he's sworn unto death addresses him as dog and everybody else does it you know it's joffrey's dog and, it, you know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's quite a nice dynamic because mostly when they're together, I'm like, this is creepy as fuck. But there is something, neither of them is one-dimensional in this moment. And, and that's nice to see. Yeah, now Sansa moves from, as the sounds of battle start occurring outside the city, um, Sansa moves into the, the Red Keep. Um, into Mega's Holdfast, which is the sort of the safest part of the Red Keep, and um, and she's basically going to shelter with all the all the other um, sort of highborn women um, with the with uh, Cersei, the Queen Regent, um, in this sort of safe house. And there's all these women, and then there's Sir Ellen Payne, who's the executioner, who's with them as well. And in a not at Cer- all terrifying says, way, <laughs> exactly. And Cersei says, you know, he's there. She tells Sansa he's there to to basically as a last line of defence. If um if if a load of Stannis's men breach the walls and come looking for someone to rape, basically. Yeah, and and you just go, oh yeah, is he? Sounds like it to me. <laughs> Do you think that he was in the corner of the room, just sort of licking his axe? 
I had a very strong sense that his brief here was to be as sort of silently creepy as possible. And I, I, it seemed to me like he wasn't just going to kind of do there and stare off into space or like sort of play noughts and crosses on the wall or something. He's, he's going to be doing something really weird. Um, mm. What did you make of this? Did you think this was like, fair enough, it's creepy as and it makes the whole thing really unsettling. And, you know, so it serves that purpose. But is this realistic? Is this is this uh, like they're like, listen, you know, it's, it's every man to his post and stuff. And you are one of the most senior knights in the kingdom. Um, but we've got a room full of women that really need to be shat up. So would you mind just going down there and staring at them with your cold, dead eyes? Yeah, thanks. Cheers, Elin. <laughs> well, I think they need they would put somebody in charge of protecting the women, I suppose, and it should be someone fairly high ranking. Um, I thought, I, I mean, I was a bit like like in a Sansa display of trust um, when Cersei <laughs> said that. I thought, oh, that makes sense. So maybe he's he's there, sort of a last stand. <laughs> Matt, you chan- never actually believe get out. <laughs> Sorry, this is this is Queen Cersei talking about a security measure taken under the regime of her son Joffrey and you're just like oh that sounds legit I'm fairly yeah, certain they're going to yeah. stick to doing what they said they'd do yeah it makes sense well it, it does, it, does make, it makes logical sense though doesn't yeah, it yeah what was the last time you um, saw a Lannister display logical thinking well I just didn't immediately jump to as we see later in the in the chapter I didn't immediately jump to or maybe he's there to kill everybody if, uh, if things go south <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but anyway Anyway, um, okay. Next up is a chapter about Davos. Um, so now we get we go from the people like Sansa and the people sort of in the city, uh, waiting to find out what happens, out to Blackwater Bay on the deck of a ship as this massive fleet approaches. Oh, it's so cool! <laughs> I don't know about you. In this, it, when 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 this happened, when it became clear that he was going to tell the story of this battle not by switching back and forth between them, but by just being like, this character saw this, and then this character mm. saw all of this. I just had the most, the strongest, most cinematic feeling I think I've ever had whilst reading a book. Just, just I could almost <laughs> see the camera zooming up out of the Red Keep, over the water, back down onto a ship, onto his worried-looking face. Yeah. I, I was just brilliant. And, like, you can do that in prose. You know, George, m- me and you, we've had our problems, but, you know... I, <laughs> Come back, all is forgiven. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I got a real sense of the just the, the sort of scale of a how many ships there are sailing down this uh, de- into this bay, and also the size of some of these ships. I mean, Davos's ship has got scorpions and catapults on it, so it's a massive ship. Yeah. Um, I, whenever whenever they talk about scorpions, though, he's never really established these as like a siege weapon, which is, I know that's what they are, but he's never really said. Whenever I say scorpion, I don't mean the big arachnid-looking thing. So, so I just imagine a ship that's just sort of like just to prove how manly they are. They've let loose these poisonous insects, and they're just running over everybody's boots, <laughs> just going. Listen, only wusses complain about the scorpions, right? I know. Oh, it's stinging. Oh, it's stinging. You're not even going to walk anywhere. You're on a boat. Shut up. <laughs> In case there's anyone listening who doesn't know what a scorpion is, it's um, it's kind of like a, it's like a, like a giant bow and arrow, really, isn't it? It fires. A, oh, is that what, what it's looked like? Yeah, I is that so. is that a legit usage? By the way, am I just being really illiterate? Is that like is there a weapon in the real world that was called the scorpion and was a big yeah? Bow and arrow? Is, is oh, that really? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a medieval no, weapon. Yeah, I had no idea. Like I've heard of like like <laughs> bel, you know um, timber listers and and trebuchets and catapults, and I'd never heard of scorpions. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, there we go, yeah. there we go. But yeah, so but yeah, from what I understand, they're basically these massive. They basically look like massive bow and arrows on wheels. 
um, which fire um, a massive stick with a point on the end yeah and with a uh, with, with arrow, big arrowhead on the end and with bad motherfucker and suck on this painted down <laughs> on the other side of the thing <laughs> yeah um, it turns out that oh, there's, there's one ship um, amongst all this proud fleet called uh, the swordfish which is obviously commanded by someone who isn't, doesn't really know what they're doing because it's, re- it's always whenever Davos looks out over the fleet there's always the swordfish doing something crap. It's either lagging behind, <laughs> or it's not got its sails set right, or it's, as we find out later, ramming something that it should really have no fucking business ramming at all. <laughs> I did, I love, I did love... Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's Davos looking out over the sea as a naval commander being like, sort of like, right, this is it. The battle for the future of my nation. What the fuck is he doing? Where the fuck is he going? And then, and you don't have a radio or anything, do you? I wonder what the international semaphore flag language is for turn around, you fucking numpty. We're going the other way. <laughs> yeah. Catch up. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. I don't care if your shoelaces are untied. We're not stopping. <laughs> You're making us look bad. Come on. <laughs> You're supposed yeah. to be my wingman, blood. What's the semaphore <laughs> for that? We find out that Stannis's ship is on the the starboard side of this fleet, which is the dangerous side. Because obviously, if you think about it, you've got this bay, you've got a massive city on a cliff on one side of it. Yeah. And unfortunately for Stannis, he's on the side which is closest to the city. <laughs> um, some people are very delighted about that. They think it's you know that's the that's the place where you're going to get the most honour and, and all this. And I am amongst their number, although not because I want Stannis to get honour, but I just, this is a much 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 better opportunity for him to get hit in the face by an angry cannonball, and I, I'm bang alongside <laughs> that as a project. <laughs> now the um, it's interesting here because uh, tactically, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. So they've this fleet has rushed into the bay headlong. Um, it's, Davos says that they didn't send any scouts out and it's, it all feels like a terrible rush and when I was reading this I was thinking why Why, especially considering what happens later on in this chapter why the lack of caution mm. um, and I thought maybe that's a mistake but we, we find out that um, the reason they're rushing is because the fleet is late and um, because they have this, these problems with storms off the coast. Yeah. And basically St- Stannis is across the other side of the bay with all his men waiting to cross and attack the city. And the way he's going to do it is over these ships. So they've got to get in there as quickly <laughs> as possible. Um, it's an interesting strategy, isn't it? Um, um, you know, speaking as a military strategy expert... Um, is this sound like, you know, walking across... Okay, I've got this massive army and they're on the wrong side of the river, but never fear because I'm going to park a load of boats perfectly in synchronised unison under heavy cannon fire and get a load of men in plate armour to walk across them. Like, it's not a recipe for a fast advance, is it? No, I suppose not. They're... Um, they're- uh, it's, it's not the clearest about how they're getting everybody across the river, is it? Especially because everything goes to shit in a big way very quickly. So you don't really see how they would have done it under ideal circumstances. But, well, um, I, ne- we but, should never discount the possibility that Stannis just was going to, like, shag Melisandre, have another shadow baby, and they fucking teleport everybody across. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. It's not a shadow baby. Shadow eagles, isn't it? It's the end of Lord of the Rings all over <laughs> fucking again. <laughs> well, this is interesting because Davos sees that Stannis' army waiting for them to arrive, and he sees that they've got the um, 
the banner with uh, the the stag in the in encircled in a, in a fiery heart, which is the new sigil. Mm. And he thinks it's a bit of a mistake because um, he thinks it should be the old Baratheon banner, so yeah. that people in the city see it and they see it, and, and it's easier to see them then as a liberating force rather than this this other strange force coming to conquer the city. Yeah, this weird um, invader. But, yeah, but also um, it looks like uh, sort of cooler heads have won out, or sort of. Uh, Melisandre's enemies have won out um, in the decision about this battle because Stannis has left Melisandre on Dragonstone, or he's mm. left, he's at least he's left her, he's left her behind, um, basically because she's getting too influential with with his men, mm. and he wants he wants to take this city and it be his victory, and he's worried that if Melisandre's there, it's her, it'll be her victory. It's a bit late to start worrying about that, isn't it, Stannis? I mean, he, he's absolutely right, but it is her victory. Like, his, his entire military strategy has been predicated upon her ability to marshal the forces of darkness to assassinate the people he wants to have assassinated. And the idea, like, mm. after that, that he wants to be like, actually, it was my military prowess. Was it bollocks? The thing is, though, we know that, but his men don't, do they? And we've oh, been privy great. to this shadow baby stuff. And he's thinking, you know, he's got to win a big battle without her help, just to just to sort of cement his authority, I suppose. Yeah, it's I, strange. It's this odd balancing act that Stannis always tries to do, isn't it? Yeah, between being a religious fundamentalist and a, a, a merciless practiker of real politique, it's a bit weird, mm. isn't it? I don't think he is a religious fundamentalist. I think he just uh, appropriates that because it serves, again, pragmatically, it serves his purposes. Yeah, but it's a weird thing for somebody so obsessed with honour to do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but maybe that's just a very 21st century perspective where it's like you're not supposed to say you believe things you don't believe. Um, Mm. If there's that much of an upside to it, then clearly there's there's an incentive. But, um, yeah. Well, I don't know. Stannis... To be honest, at this point, is 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 a rather pathetic lost cause to me. So you know, it's like he could have he could have marched out there and been like, "Everybody, pay attention! I want to be completely clear about this victory. I'm shagging her, her babies, somehow a shadows, and murder my enemies, just so we're all correct." I still wouldn't have been impressed with him because he's a cock. <laughs> yeah, you really dislike Stannis. I, I I don't have this this sort of this hatred of Stannis to be honest I, I still see him as quite a grey character but you, you really don't like him do you? Oh, he's just joyless he's just not he's not entertaining to be around and he's not <laughs> he, which is which is my primary request from a monarch is that they be entertaining uh, <laughs> um, but um, he's, he's, well, he, alright as a reader he's not entertaining and as a character he's repellent because he's, you know, he's doing all of these horrendous things, um, and claiming that he's right to do them as well. Like, I, there's something in the kind of like grubby shamelessness of certain other characters that I respond to a lot better than the, than the hypocrisy of somebody claiming to be doing something that's absolutely right when it's so manifestly wrong. Hmm. Okay. Um, the. I, I, in general, about this battle now, it turns into that there is a fleet, an opposition fleet in the bay, and they basically join battle now. And um, at the same time, you've got uh, the you've got the ships um, ships trying to trying to land men on the beach, if you like, whilst there are these trebuchets and um, and catapults from the city firing 
um, all sorts of, sorts of debris over the walls. And um, you know, ships explode as they as they sort of going towards the shore. And I don't know if it just felt like to me like a some kind of medieval version of the Normandy landings. This it was like yeah. just really visceral. Yeah, it really is. Um, and that's a great touchstone as well. But um, and imagine doing the Normandy landings whilst encased in plate steel. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm this is interesting because uh, Davos, uh, it's actually remarked when Davos is sort of, as, as the fleets approach and he's looking around and he's seeing that most of the captains are glittering in full armour. And you, yeah, when you think about it, these are people on sort of le- not on less than sturdy wooden boats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't it interesting that, you know, even at a totally different age where we might think that, you know, Vanity Fair didn't exist and fashion wasn't a concern and uh, <laughs> and, and so on. And yet, and yet, you still have peacocks who like walking up and down in really stupid places wearing really stupid clothes. Um. <laughs> well, I, I suppose the only defence to that is um, maybe you weigh up the, the chances of dying in various ways and think chances of boat sinking and me drowning, um, likely as it is, is lower than chance of me being hit by an arrow somewhere where I don't have armour on. If I, if, if I'm just going to wear, like... The very basic man. I think um, Davos just has a helmet, doesn't he? And even that yeah. actually saves his life because he, he would he, get, he has a blow to the head, oh, which he survives because yeah. he's wearing it. Um, so it's that it's that sort of <laughs> trying to trying to balance your risks carefully, I suppose, isn't it? And unfortunately yeah. for the uh, for the majority of these captains, um, the decision to wear armor is a is a is a very poor one. <laughs> So there's, there's this. There's that's, this that's, my, that's my that's my musical rendition of the decision to wear armor <laughs> into a sea battle, and I stand by it. <laughs> so this naval battle's raging on. Um, there's actually Davos's ship um, boards, and there's a there's a boarding party, isn't there? And um, he actually takes a ship by attacking it um, and leaping onto the deck with the rest of his men and fighting hand to hand, and. Um, it just, you just really get a sense of being right amongst it all, don't you? So powerful. I'll tell you what I was dead impressed with. was um, Davos at one point reflects on the fact that as a smuggler, he's never had a battle like this because he's his whole thing, you know, he, he who nicks and runs away lives to nick another day, isn't it? A smuggler doesn't want to have a fight. And so it's the first time he's done this. And in the middle of this terrifying chaos he has the presence of mind to know how to board a ship and divide up his crew instantly so that both ships are crewed and so like mm. what like in that moment i'd just be like i'd get as far as ramming speed and then we'd hit it <laughs> and i would just be like kind of i'm on a fucking boat and he's ramming another fucking boat this is amazing <laughs> what we've been boarded shit <laughs> 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 I love that. So we've been boarded. What? <laughs> I wasn't what do you mean? This at all. <laughs> no one told me about this. And I was smuggling. No one tried to board me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, precisely. So it's. Um, I am. Yeah. I'm just. I. I mean, this is not news. I think, but I would suck in naval combat command, and Davos is very impressive. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, it looks like the um, the Stannis's fleet has won the battle. Basically, it's turning in their favour, and um, and it's all looking good for Davos at least. And then uh, there's what there's, there's one thing 
actually, let's just rewind slightly. In the build-up to all this, even though the battle goes well to this point, there are, as we saw before in, in other big moments in these books, there are these little off-beats or um, off-notes that make you think, oh, something isn't quite right here. One of them is the fact that when they sail into the bay, Davos notices that um, Tyrion's created this kind of chain oh, um, to, to chain. close off the bay. And, and, and the chain is down. Um, so it looks like Tyrion's tried to make this chain to sort of close the bay off to stop the fleet getting in, and he hasn't completed it in time. Um, but you wonder whether Tyrion would you know, that, that's, again, you know, it's, it's a little... You get that sense of, ooh, that doesn't feel quite right. And then mm. when this battle begins, Davos has a moment to realise that the biggest, most powerful ships on the King's Landing side aren't in the battle. Either must be further up the river or some kind of relief force. Mm. So that's another off note. And you're just thinking, ooh, something isn't right. Yeah. And it builds to this crescendo when there's this small fleet of boats approaching... Uh, Davos's fleet, and um, and he, he's wondering what on earth they are, and he realizes that they're filled with wildfire. Just at the moment that the good old captain of the swordfish decides to ram one of the fuckers, <laughs> and there's the almighty, almost like a nuclear blast of an explosion. Oh, it's great, isn't it? And in the middle of it all, you can almost hear Davos going, "Don't fucking ram him! Don't fucking you fucking yeah. numpty! Oh God!" <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, so it, I mean, when that happens, this guy, this is the it's the most horrendous explosion, isn't it? Mm. And it causes a, a devastation across Stannis's fleet, and. Just, I mean, Davos's ship is included in that sort of blast, and he ends up in the water, and then he he sort of decides to try and swim for the mouth of the bay, and it's at that point he realizes that the chain's now been raised, and basically all those boats that have all that all that wreckage is is being pushed against the chain, creating this kind of flaming barrier of well, he basically says the mouth of the Blackwater turned into the mouth of hell. And you realise that this has all just been an extremely clever, strategic move by Tyrion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and Tyrion, you had that sense all the way through, didn't you? Of Tyrion's... Tyrion doesn't seem to me to be the guy who builds a high wall to keep people out. He seems to be the guy who invites people in and then turns the tables on them. You know, kind of uses Mm. their strength against them. That's a very Tyrion Lannister move. Um. And and it happens here, and it's brilliant. It's such an exciting scene. But I tell you what was interesting to me was that in the TV series, like it was played as calm, 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 tense, 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 and then there's an explosion, and and mm. then basically there's chaos and the battle's over. But I actually felt like this battle was paced a bit better than that because it wasn't just about these ships. I was reading this waiting for the the ships to happen and actually there's Mm. quite a lot of battle before that occurs and an awful lot of battle afterwards. And um, it just, it played, it drew me much more into it. Whereas the impression that I had after having watched the Black Water TV episode is that it was all about this nuclear weapon and, and nothing else really mattered. So I like this a lot better. Yeah. Um, actually, just one thing I wanted to mention with the, the battle before this explosion. Uh, we mentioned those landing parties that have started uh, landing on the beach 
um, to to assault the actual city. So that's begun already before this explosion, mm. and um, the there are basically these uh, these units that are coming coming out from the city to try and repel the invaders or the people landing every time the soldiers landing, mm. and they're often led by the hound. And Davos sees at one point that uh, the hound has led this charge and has actually ridden onto one of the landing boats and has just been chopping people down on the boat, on his horse, and then rides off again. On you a just horse? Get a sense of just a, yeah, <laughs> just get a sense of a, a like, ridiculously, I don't know, um, is it brave or is it reckless that, um, that the hound is, you know? Maybe he's been inspired by the love of a good woman. <laughs> yeah, that's it, you see? You see, it knows no bounds, and I wonder how long this inspiration will last. Not very, I get the feeling. <laughs> um, because we move on to a chapter about Tyrion. Ah, oh, Tyrion. Um, th- th- this basically, we zoom, again, like you say, almost cinematically, we zoom now, as, as Davos is floating in the water, looking down towards this flaming wreckage mm. um, of what used to be Stannis's fleet, we zoom out and then back into Tyrion, who's standing on the walls watching all this. And, um, I mean, his plans worked, but Tyrion does have a, does sort of, you get this sense of guilt on his side as well about the kind of destruction he's caused. He, he's almost, um, he says to Stannis in his own head, um, this is your work, Stannis, as much as it is mine. Mm. Um, and I don't know, that was a really, I, I really liked that introduction to Tyrion's part in this battle and the fact that even in the midst of all this, he's still kind of got a conscience. Yeah, and he's quite introspective. Um, mm. I think it would have been... He definitely would have been a big cop-out if he'd just kind of done that classic um, weak character thing in bad Hollywood movies where they get a, they fire a gun and suddenly they're like, kind of, <laughs> motherfuckers! I am Shiva, the god of death. You know, like, they don't... It would, have been, it would have been inappropriate for that character to kind of do that. So it is good that he stays in this place. And... I do wonder, though, like how this squares with the fact that one of his one of his defining statements about his character is that you know he uh, way back in book one, I do have a certain regard for cripples, bastards, and broken things. And great line, great summary of his character, really has guided his actions ever since. But he's about to create a sort of a lot more cripples, bastards, and broken things, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? And and that's mm. clearly kind of weighing on his conscience a bit. Um, I will be very interested to see whether that's just like a kind of a moment, or if that re- if this really haunts him after the fact as well. If he survives, yeah. Now he doesn't have a great deal of time to sort of consider that and worry about it because um, this isn't the winning blow, is it? By any stretch of the imagination. No, when no. I when this first when this first happened, when I was reading it, I thought. Uh, that is that the battle over and it's not because Stannis can, has still got this massive army and enough of uh, Stannis's ships have survived to help them cross in some way um so so the battle is still going on and the city is still in peril um hmm. <laughs> we get just a moment to uh to consider Joffrey's contribution to this battle um, who is obviously the king, so you're expecting to be involved. He is in control of the three whores, which are those three trebuchets, yeah. um, which are defending the city. And um, he's decided to uh, punish... So, do you remember there was that, um, <laughs> there was that plot 
to to open the gates to let Stannis in by these people who were nicknamed the Antler Men, and they rent, they captured all those yeah. turncoats and uh, and sort of held them. Well, Joffrey's punishment for them is to nail antlers to their heads, strip them naked, and fire them over the walls through the trebuchet. Fucking hell! <laughs> yeah. Do you know what though? This is even given that I've written off Joffrey since episode one, like. Even this made even me take a step back and be like, "Where is this kid getting this from?" Like, you, you can't blame this on violent video games, can you? You can't blame this on him having had an action man with with real eagle eyes and a functioning AK forty seven. No, no. What's going on in this? What what is he? Fourteen, fifteen, something like that. Mm. Like, what is going on in this kid's head, such that, like. That that he's like, how do we deal with traitors? Yeah, I know. Nail an ironic symbol of their treachery to their heads, and then throw them over the wall at my enemies. What's for <laughs> tea, mum? Yeah, like sort of fucking fifteen-year-old thinks of that. Yeah, I mean. It is the you know he's, he's obviously a homicidal maniac, isn't he? Um, but yes. I, I suppose I suppose the only thing I would say about that is that we are living in a country, England, where back in the day the punishment for for treason was being dragged through the streets by a horse and then hung till you were almost dead and then having your guts ripped out and burned in front of you and then having yourself chopped up into four quarters and spiked on the on the edges of the walls so you know, <laughs> our own medieval ancestors were no strangers to incredibly cruel and unusual punishments well that's that's very true <laughs> but it, it, is there not a thing though that like that sort of developed as a tradition over time like there's a sense of like that nastiness didn't proceed straight from the mind of one diseased individual in the mm. middle of a battle and you've got to be a pretty special nasty piece of work not to go to any of the hundreds of torture chambers or whatever other stuff traditions like that that you have on hand and instead go no I think we're going to go for physical comedy bring my hammer and nails yeah it's pretty grim isn't it it is it's I mean, pretty rough. grim um Look, the the battle now begins to turn away from from Tyrion again. Um, we get this see, we get this moment with the Hound. Uh, Tyrion goes down to the to the front line, if you like, to see how his his uh, as I said before, these groups of sort of outriders who, who who are leaving the city to try and repel the invaders and then coming back in are getting on. And the Hound, um, who as we've seen, has been one of the sort of fiercest leaders of these. Um, pretty much just deserts. Yeah. Uh, he he says, "I'm not going out there again," and it's because of the wildfires spread to the land now, mm. and there's just but there's basically fire everywhere. Yeah. And um, and that's the one thing that he is uh, because of his past, because mm. he had his head stuffed in a uh, in a fire when he was little by his you know psychopathic elder brother. Mm. That's the one thing he fears is fire, and he just flatly refuses to go out there again. Yeah. And. You have to say, you'd be with him on that, wouldn't you? Um, I mean, I, you know, for all that warfare demands things of people and that, you know, and, and, and you know, you see ast- astonishing heroism in moments like that. Um, you definitely see the Hound reach a breaking point, don't you, where he's all the way through, you're kind of wondering, why is this character 
who is twisted but has a sense of honour, why is he serving a king like Joffrey? And you can almost hear him in his head going, and now I've reached the the limit of the things I'm willing to do in service of this fucking maniac. I'm not going back out there. But it's a huge moment, isn't it? Because up to this point, there's, George Martin's got a lot of tension out of the fact that the Hound will do anything Joffrey tells him to. And so mm. there's this, you know, for there to be this break is... Um, it is really dramatic, and but you almost don't have time to kind of reflect on that because it's the middle of a battle scene, and so you just barrel straight into the next bit, which is also fucking brilliant. Yeah, I I wonder I, what do you think about it? it what's the um, is it is it commendable what the hound does, or is it reprehensible? Because you compare that to um, someone like Barristan Selmy or uh, one of the one of the sort of more old school members of the Kingsguard, um, who we've been led to kind of admire, and they would have carried on regardless here because that's what they're supposed to do. And to be honest, this guy Mandon Moore, who's another another member of the Kingsguard, um, when the Hound refuses to go out, he basically steps up next. He's, he's, he's no lover, he's no fan of Tyrion, but he steps up next to Tyrion and says, "The King's hand commands you." All sort of all sort of brooding menace. And then when, when Tyrion eventually leads the charge himself, Mandon Moore's right there with him. Mm. Which is, the, which, I mean, it, it, it takes sort of a different kind of bravery for both sides, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to, to, to consider which, which is right, really, here. Well, yeah, particularly in the context of a war where morality is a distant echo, if it even was part of, mm. part of the song at all. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's an impossible question to answer. Like in other circumstances, where you might be able to say, "Oh, this is the war of X against Y. This is you know who's 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 better and who's worse." Honestly, trying to pick who's better and who's worse between fucking Stannis Baratheon and the Lannisters, you know, like which type of shit would you like to have thrown at your face? Neither, thanks. <laughs> so the idea of, of individual acts of heroism being committed on either side is like I you know I accept that that's possible but mostly my impression is just like uh, a plague on both your crumbling castles you know actually which um it's probably as good a time as any to do this which uh which side did you want to win in this battle Ooh, that's a question um, basically what you have is you have the kind of banal evil of Stannis Baratheon who I dislike but who I don't I don't really hate to the extent that I hate the Lannisters um, but on on the Stannis side you've nothing really to root for I like Davos a lot but he's going to follow Stannis no matter what whereas Tyrion seems to me to be there is a hope in Tyrion that even this psycho king might actually have a functioning administration and do some good for people. So, but do you, do, you, do, you, do you think Stannis? Do you think Stannis is as bad as Joffrey, though? Um, no, I don't. I don't. But I do think that Tyrion is better than Davos, hmm. and that you know, it's 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 like the kind of what would you rather have? Kind of a bag of kind of vague mediocrity or a ter- a horrible pile of shit with a single diamond in it 
and mm. and I think that's the way to describe House Lannister at this point. I wouldn't say I was pulling for them, but I definitely the character I'm most invested in is Tyrion at this point. Yeah, I, I at this point I actually wanted Stannis to to take the city, mm. but for Tyrion to escape, that would have been my ideal. Ah, oh, a complex decision making. I, I like that. <laughs> I should I'll go back and rethink. Yeah, that, that would be pretty good because the Stannis thing would like switch it all up, and you'd get away from this thing where it's the Lannisters in King's Landing, you know, which has been the mm. story for a book and a half now, and is a little bit tiresome. Um, it would switch it up, but I don't want Tyrion to die. So Tyrion, Tyrion mm. escapes disguised as a goat. <laughs> a small goat. A, sm- a baby goat. A baby goat. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, this, this, at this point in the book, the, the, the battle is again right on this knife edge. And basically, Stannis' forces have now reached the King's Gate and they're trying to ram it open. They've got this battering ram at the King's Gate. Basically, if that gate falls, the city's it's over. Mm. You know, the city falls. Um, and Tyrion is the only person who can lead this attack now the hounds decided to bugger off. So um, he gives this rousing speech, which pretty much ends with, this is your city, Stannis means to sack, and that's your gate he's bringing down. So come with me and kill the son of a bitch. And, um, and he gets people on side, and yeah. uh, they follow him. What a moment. What a moment. You know, you know that speech in Independence Day where Bill Pullman does his we will not go quietly into the night? He's got fucking nothing on this. Because in that moment, I'm looking at an American president being an American president, not looking at somebody who's been downtrodden and mocked his entire life for his inability to do precisely what he is currently doing, turning around an entire fighting force and going out and making them fight. I was on my chair whooping at this point. It was great. <laughs> I, I would love it if Tyrion did use that. If he, if he had got up on his horse and gone, we will not go quietly into the night. <laughs> in fact, in fact, it would be amazing if someone could like a fan edit YouTube to overlay that speech on Tyrion's sort of oh, relevant speech in the. Wouldn't, in wouldn't the that series. be amazing? Like you'd have to work quite hard at it, but that would be great. If I was any good at cutting video, I would do that. <laughs> We will not go quietly. Today, <laughs> I love we that celebrate moment. the continuation of our hegemony over this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today is Lannister Day. No. No? Anybody? <laughs> 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 okay, right, let's, let's, let's move over to the next chapter. And um, we go to Sansa hold up in this safe room we assume um and this is we get news from the from the front line if you like coming in every so often and at first the sort of the news is really good you know there's this the, there's the the wildfire plans worked stannis's fleet is has had it and um cersei has a has a chat with sansa and uh they're talking contingency plans and cersei says that if it was anyone other than Stannis and they took the city, she would try to seduce him to get out of it. And um, and she says, unfortunately, when it comes to Stannis, she's a better chance of seducing his horse, hmm. um, which is quite quite a clever line, I suppose. Yeah, but, but um, <laughs> given the way this book has dealt with unorthodox sexual relationships in the past, there's a bit of me that cringed and was like, don't fucking show us that. Don't fucking show us that. <laughs> Um, Cer- Cersei uh, speaks of, I mean, uh, of how she 
one of the ways she holds on to power. Um, and she says one, one of the weapons that women have, one is tears and one is the weapon between your legs. Um, Delicately and, put as ever, Cersei. Yeah. And, I mean, to say this to Sansa, poor girl, who's, as we know, is all sweetness and innocence, yeah. and what she's making of all this, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's this, there's this uh, sort of conflict between Cersei's advocating the use of fear um, to get people on side later on, and Sansa suggests that um, love is the way you instill loyalty. Mm. And it's, it's, it's two classic... Um, opposing arguments, isn't it? And each of them can work very well in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a way, this is a Ned Stark versus Tywin Lannister governance debate, isn't it? Um, mm. You know, do you yeah, it is. do you compel people or do you inspire people? Um, and what's interesting is, you know, the contrast between what Cersei's saying inside and what Tyrion's doing outside, because she's all about, you know, kind of. Uh, talking and compelling, and there's this this kind of over this glowering presence in the corner of the room that's all about coercion and force. And outside Tyrion's turning the tide of the battle, but by being inspiring. Yeah, you wonder what the reaction would have been if Tyrion, rather than going, "We will not go quietly into the night," um, basically got, got up and you've said, "You've got that word." Perfect, haven't you? You've got that entire speech in your head. You're just holding back. <laughs> yeah. But in, in, instead of doing that, he got up and said, You've all, you all better get on your horses and follow me, or else I'm going to have this big bastard here, Mandon Moore, kill the lot of you. Mm. It and I don't worked, think that would have been nearly as effective. No, it wouldn't. Well, it probably would have been effective, but you, you would have had just a bunch of frightened people riding to their deaths because they don't have that fire in the belly, do they? Yeah, that, they're not, they're not ready to, to have the fight. Also, what you'd have is a bunch of a bunch of angry, cowed people who've been humiliated riding behind you all holding swords. And I'm fairly certain that once you got out <laughs> of the gate and into the chaos, they would either turn right back around again and scarper or just kill you. Um, yeah. You know, so once again, Cersei thinks she's a lot, a lot more of a badass leader than she actually is because her method here would have seen instant loss and death yeah now as as things begin to get worse outside and the reports begin to get more and more depressing for the people sheltering in Megas Holdfast um, the queen uh, the queen decides Cersei decides to um, to pull Joffrey away from the fighting even though he's relatively safe anyway and get him in and get him into complete safety which which um the king you know, is excused is warfare today. Problem. He's got a note from his mother. <laughs> that is exactly it, isn't it? And, Awful. Um, and and you you worry about what effect that's going to have. And also, she she says to she 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 reveals a dastardly Sir Ilan plan, which is she says to Sansa that basically, if this goes ill, Sir Ilan's here to kill us all, including you, Sansa. And she says. Um, it's just it's just entirely about she she knows that Sansa probably will be spared by Stannis because you know the way the politics have lined up but she, it's entirely just a, a bitter threat this and one that is it's not just a threat she will carry it out and she says the Starks will have no joy from the fall of House Lannister is her reasoning for it well I mean that's probably true isn't it because I don't see that there's much joy to be shared out in this situation um, hmm. 
Yeah. You can just hear the boos from the gallery when she says that line. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, Lannister. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm never signing up for Lannister Day now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, wouldn't that be a horrible <laughs> festival? Can you imagine what Lannister Day would be like? <laughs> Only brothers and sisters are allowed to dance it, dance with each other at the oh. dance in the evening. <laughs> oh. <laughs> horrible. Okay, uh, we're back with Tyrion next, and back into the heat of the battle. And there's this there's this cavalry charge to basically to to stop the um to to, to stop the gate from getting smashed down. So they've gone out a different gate basically, and now they're trying to trying to fight the men who are trying to batter their way into the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tyrion's leading the charge. He's got Podrick on his left, which is his um oh, his, his squire, trusty Podrick. Podrick, trusty who Podrick. doesn't seem to be able to get to the end of a sentence. Yeah, I mean Podrick is. Intensely loyal and a lovely lad, but you think, you know, probably not the most proficient fighter out there. But luckily for Tyrion, on his right, he's got Sir Mandon Moore, one of the King's Guard. Who this is the description of him: Sir Mandon flashed past him, death in snow white silk. So you think he can handle himself? <laughs> you do think he can handle himself? Although the word silk there does kind of bring to mind something that's not necessarily so much badass as it is carefully tailored. Oh, I know. I I loved it. I loved it. it was it was that, that sort of mixture of elegance and just complete badassness as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I thought it was really cool. But, yeah, no, know. no, you could be right. I just just for me, like it just kind of conjured the idea of like a kind of like shit silk shirt, you know, kind of three three buttons open with chest hair and medallions in it is what it kind of brought to my mind. <laughs> the idea of Samandon Moore as medallion man. You know, he's got an Egyptian <laughs> fertility symbol hanging here. and uh... <laughs> uh, Now, Tyrion gets in the middle of this battle and he's sort of hacking and slashing everywhere and killing left, right and centre. And he, he gets he, he describes this um, being drunk on battle, which he says Jamie's described to him before. Mm. He said Jamie's experienced it and told him about it. And Tyrion never thought he'd experience himself. I'll just read you a bit of this passage. Mm. Um This is how he describes this sort of battle fever. He says um, how time seemed to blur and slow and even stop. The past and the future vanished until there was nothing but the instant. How fear fled and thought fled, even your body. Um, You don't feel feel your wounds or the ache in your back or the weight of the armour or the sweat running in your eyes. You stop feeling, you stop thinking, you stop being you. There's just the fight, the foe, this man and the next and the next. And you know they're afraid and tired, but you're not. You're alive, and death is all around you, but their swords move so slowly, and you can dance through them laughing. And I just, I mean, that that final bit is a quote from Jamie, mm. which Tyrion's remembering, and it's just the most Jamie Lannister quote I've ever heard in my life, and you can see why Yeah, Jamie Lannister's made for that kind of moment, isn't he? Yeah. And Tyrion's kind of experiencing that himself now as well. Yeah, it's really this kind of, you get this visceral sense of how battle could have been seen to be not just a not just a desirable thing or a necessary thing, but like a noble thing, like an almost like an, a, an artistic, aesthetic thing back in the day mm. when knights, you know, when knights were knights and so on. The interesting thing here is that that, that part about how Jamie loves the moment of battle because everybody else is moving more slowly and he feels invincible. Mm. And you can believe that with Jamie because he's been he's obviously naturally very good at fighting with a sword and he's been trained since he was 
tiny to do so mm. and he, he most of the time he'll be fighting peasants who have only ever held a, a hoe in their life to, to, to sort of work on a farm you know and have never held anything pointy before really so it's not surprising that he can kill left right and center and and not worry about himself too much and even when knights come against him he because he's so skillful he doesn't feel he can be killed mm. and you wonder how how that translates to Tyrion how Tyrion can feel like that um, but I think part part of it is just luck, mm, uh, and it's yeah. also the fact he's got Mandon Moore next to him, and this other guy, Balan Swan, who's another member of the Kingsguard, who are fighting, almost protecting him. And um, it, a little bit later on, it says that the, the it ends up being, but there's basically Tyrion in the middle, and there's Balan Swan and, and Mandon Moore either side of him, um, surrounded by enemies, and they. Um, make battle as graceful as a dance apparently and that's how he's sort of that's how he's surviving he's got these two machines next to him yeah. which are keeping anyone dangerous away yeah and he's just coming forward and stabbing every now and then yeah yeah but it doesn't the kind of impact on the character doesn't feel like he's it's that kind of cowardly dash out stab run back and pretend that you're having a good oh, fight oh no yeah you're right you yeah. know it, it, you really feel Tyrion go through a kind of exp- you know something really profound here where he experiences possibly for the first time what it's like to like that kind of physical joy um mm. uh, that that kind of an idea um yeah great character moment yeah and and also uh, it's interesting that just just as you get into the point where you get these sort of very grand um heraldic heroic moments where you see these these two you know fully white clad kingsguard you know fighting like you know making making battle as graceful as a dance and just as you you get loaded to stop you getting loaded into this sort of romantic view of battle you get these other details dumped on you almost like they've been picked out of again out of sort of the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, but I mean, there's the but a medieval version. There's a point where there's a knight on the floor sobbing, uh, saying he yields. He holds up his gauntlet, and uh, Tyrion takes it and realizes the hand's still inside it, and the, the the knight's dying. And you just get that visceral realism as well every so often. And it, I thought it was a really powerful mix that the yeah. two things. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And for the same reason, it presents you with war, not. Uh, you know, actually, after having just done this thing about this kind of balletic, kind of, you know, graceful movement involving death, dumps you straight back out of that sentiment and into holding a guy's severed hand inside the glove mm. it was chopped off in. Um, yeah. And I, that's a very, uh, I think that's a very good way of um, expressing warfare. Because it's always been both of those things, I think. And to pretend that it's one or the other kind of doesn't tell the whole story. They do manage to relieve the gates. They manage to repel the invaders at the gates. And then they see that there's so much debris and wreckage in the river now, that's uh, in the bay, that Stannis's men are now crossing um, the water by just sort of jumping from ship to ship, from wrecked ship to wrecked ship. It's almost created a bridge. Yeah. And... Um, and Tyrion sees that happening, and this is a this is a, a line which is taken and used in the series as well. It's actually used at the gate, you know, without the Tyrion's big speech. Mm. This is his second one, where he says he points to the, the the sort of the advancing army of Stannis, and he says, "Those are brave men down there. Let's go and kill them." And then off they go again and charge. Yeah. Um, this is a this is a much more difficult battle for Tyrion because 
you know, a lot of he loses a lot of men. He loses his horse. He ends up fighting for his life on basically on the deck of a ship mm. um, with the support of these two Kingsguard again. <laughs> There's one surreal moment in the middle of all this very serious battle, and it's it's also I suppose it's horrific, but it's kind of weirdly darkly funny as well, where <laughs> this naked guy with antlers nailed to his head, lands in the middle of the battle. <laughs> and it's almost like one of those recurring jokes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's obviously one of the antler men. It's just crazy. It's Python, isn't it? It's exactly what it is. Yeah. A man with antlers falling out of the sky in the middle of a battle where you're all hyped up for honour and nobility and possible death. And then a, a man, he's got his cock out and everything. What the fuck? Anyway, on with the battle. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, during this desperate battle on the ship, uh, Tyrion sees on the other side of the bank, he basically falls, uh, Maybe, yeah, he, he sort of gets turned around and falls over and almost drowns. And um, and he sees on one side of the bank that Stannis's, most of Stannis's army now appears to be fighting amongst itself or fighting another army. And he can't work out if the if you know the Stannis has gotten to the other side of the bank. Or, and then he sees that the King's Landing's on the opposite side. So Stannis is still on the wrong side of the river, but he's fighting someone. Mm. And that, there's just that bit of confusion. And then Tyrion almost gets washed into the water. He just about hangs on. And Mandon Moore appears and says, give me a hand. And when Tyrion reaches out, he realises, I mean, this is very astute for a guy who's fighting for his life. He notices Mandon's offering the wrong hand. And he sort of pulls his head back as... The, the the Kingsguard knight slashes with his sword, and looking uh, and, and it sort of it it was it looks like it's going to be a blow that was going to take Tyrion's head off. Yeah. And in the end, it just opens his face up, Ugh. and just at the moment where you think Tyrion's going to get ended, yeah, as Mandon Moore standing over him, Pod appears and <laughs> pushes Mandon Moore into the water and saves Tyrion's life. And for a moment, um, Tyrion thinks it's Jamie. Yeah. Which is kind of I just like I love that little yeah little touch as well. Yeah, well the only person he would ever have expected in the past to come to his aid physically is Jamie. Um yeah. so that's a beautiful moment. But as much as anything else, you can hear Podrick Payne in the background. It's like you ever seen um Scott Pilgrim, the movie Scott Pilgrim? Like <laughs> no. Oh, it's brilliant. It's just it's full of it's full of all this kind of like old video game stuff. And you can almost hear Podrick Payne in the background experiencing the do 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 Level up one million points. <laughs> and he goes from being this sort of like, oh, you're a bit of a liability, aren't you? Nice enough, lad. But, and it goes from that to being a sort of like, Podrick Payne, I want Podrick in my team. I'm picking him first. <laughs> yeah. Kingsguard kill, multiple bonus. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah. Podrick Payne wins. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate POV character saving combo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All Podrick's super combo dreams have come at once there, yeah, haven't they? they? That is a super have. move on his part. He's brilliant. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's worth making the point here, although he's um <clears throat> he's saved Tyrion from certain death um the chapter ends with us thinking Tyrion might still die here mighty 
You know, it's a, yeah. obviously a horrific wound. Yeah. And he ends up just, the, the chapter ends with him losing consciousness and we don't know if he's ever going to get it back again. Yeah, and once again, you wouldn't, you wouldn't write off George Martin as somebody who would just kill a POV character, even if it's the most fascinating character in the entire series. You could see him mm. doing it, couldn't you? You could see him being like, kind of, right, him, off him. Fuck the audience. Fuck them all. Kill Tyrion. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm nervous at this point. I have to say, though, like this, th- that little turnaround at the end, um, I thought was great, came at the end of this long sequence of just like, I don't see how Tyrion's going to get out of this. And then something worse yeah, happens. Yeah. I don't see how Tyrion's going to get out of this. And then he gets sliced, and it's like, I don't see how Tyrion's going to get out of this. And then it's Podrick Payne, of all people. He turns out just fucking great. So that gives me yeah. a small amount of hope, but as we've seen, I have learned not to trust George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Bastard. Um, let's move on to the final chapter for today. This is Sansa. Um, all the Sansa and all the women are in the Megas Holdfast. Lancel Lannister comes stumbling in, doing his great sort of lost. Lost the battle is lost. <laughs> That's amazing. You've been on the stage. That was fantastic. <laughs> it really feels like that, though, doesn't yeah, it? One it of does. those moments where it's, it's all gone wrong. He staggers again. across, staggers back the other way, clasps at his tunic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and Cersei's reaction is to pull Joffrey out of the front line again. Um, and Lancel says the last time that happened, it caused a mutiny. Mm. And in, and. You know, Cersei doesn't care. She's going to do it again. And Cersei flees as well. She's gone then. I mean, after all these threats about what's going to happen once the battle goes ill, um, she doesn't really follow through on any of it. She just, she, she bails. And um, San- it's left to, it left to Sansa to try and keep everybody together. She tries to, to be the queen. calm people down. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she even looks after that. Lancel's been wounded. And um, basically... <laughs> Cersei decides she wants to go and get Joffrey and when Lancel tries to stop her she pokes him in his wound and he crumples and she wanders off and then it's Sansa who picks him up this guy, one of the Lannisters who she's supposed to despise and she picks him up and looks after him it just shows how good a character Sansa is I suppose how nice a character she is despite what's happened to her that's true, there's a bit, I, I did like this and I thought it did make sense in the context of Sansa as a character but there's also a bit of me that feels like that's a bit it's a bit Florence Nightingale you know, by which I mean, it's a bit somebody showing, you know, a kind of idea of nobility and care for everybody, no matter wh- where they are. You know, it's kind of Sansa as Doctors Without Borders, and I'm not certain that that's that's a kind of moral decision that Sansa's got the nous to reach all by herself without there being a, a, a tradition of that elsewhere in the world. And I've seen no other evidence of that. Yeah. So. It gets to the stage where the, the castle's being looted. So people, that, so enemies are inside the castle now. In fact, I'm not sure it's enemies. I think it's just... Um, it's just people. It's just people. It's just deserting guards and stuff. Do you remember when, um, I think it was uh, the leader of the City Watch said to Tyrion, or it was, might be Bronn, said to Tyrion that some of these guards can't really be trusted in terms of the loyalty and when things start going wrong, they'll desert. Well, that's happening now. Yeah. And the, so the whole kind of order is breaking down. And Sansa runs for her room and locks herself in there. But she's not alone. Um, There is a very drunk hound um, hiding in her room. And this was, I mean, the first time I read this, this was terrifying. Yeah. Because you've seen the hound 
kind of go 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 through a threshold avenue in 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 refusing to go back out and fight and ceasing to just be Joffrey's attack dog. Um, you've seen you've seen him in a position that's of of, of you know like he really seems to have gone through a transformation, and so and then. The place he goes is Sansa's bedroom, and you're like, "Oh, don't, don't fucking do this, mm. don't do this," you know. Like you just like, as much as as you know, you know the character, but also the story. You're just like, "Oh, don't take it here," you know what I mean? Um, and mm. um, and oh, ooh, it's tense. Yeah, and she asks him why he's here. He says he's going to escape the city, and she says, "Why have you come here?" And he says, "You promised me a song, um, and I, you know, basically, I mean to have it now." And for all this beforehand, if if like me, you were worrying that that might be a euphemism for something else, yeah. then this is the point where you, you it's on so it's on a knife edge, isn't it? Oh and, yeah. And it, and he he ends up um, holding a knife to her throat, and she he but he he does literally want her to sing to him. And he and she sings a song to him at held at knife point. Um, and there's this. It's interesting. The first time I read this, I was so. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts. I was so frightened for Sansa that it was just a relief when the hangar left mm. and um, everything. About, I mean, I, th- I think he makes an offer to take her away as well, which she refuses. Mm. Um, there's like a half implied offer there. Um, and I was just. You know, it was basically when I read it the first time. Fear, 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 terror, terror, terror. Oh, thank God he'd gone. Yeah, and she's okay. Yeah. Um, the second time I read it, because you knew that she was going to be okay. Um, there's this point where she sings this song, and it's clear that that the, the hound starts crying, and it's just it's just so sad when you reread it. Yeah. Um, and you do feel, um, even though I think once you you take away. The, the feeling of threat once you know it's going to be okay mm. you can really get a sense of the sort of sadness of this this character who's being seen as a threat as well mm. yeah it's a great scene and um it's again much better than in the tv series because it happens in the dark in the tv mm. series you can't do that obviously in a book you really can and it works oh man it works and um and you're right i had exactly the same experience reading it through i was just like just really scared and um and that kind of overwhelmed the fact it meant that i really didn't walk away from the scene with a sense of what the hound was doing or like why mm. he was i mean it's so he insists that it is for a song but is he is is he there not really knowing what he wants is the oh what yeah. are we witnessing the hound wrestle with himself at his darkest moment and decide whether fundamentally to do uh do a reprehensible thing or do uh or not you know um mm. and you know cuz cuz if we are then those tears mean everything um and i wonder how if at all the the character of the hound is going to develop from this you know is he going to be ashamed of his vulnerability is this going to be a kind of road to damascus moment where everything changes um mm. cuz i i won't lie i would like to see that you know, there is a seed of sympathy in how we how we think about the Hound, even though, you know, he's done these horrible things. I think, yeah, I think there's also an, an element all wrapped up in that of this sort of, of this sort of classic little brother kind of thing, where 
there's there's the, his better nature and then there's what he's expected of him and almost what he expects of himself because of of what his brother's like because you, you can be guaranteed if this is the mountain in this situation he's not thinking twice about what he's going to do next and I think that's all wrapped up in it as well who he is and I don't I just, yeah I, I thought it was I mean I, I think the Hound as a character is really interesting and he's one of the one of the most one of the deepest characters in the book really mm. um and I think it's it's because of chapters like this, when he's doing or on the verge of doing horrendous things and terrifying things, and it's you're almost you can sometimes when you're reading it you can almost be in that moment. If, if, if you think about it enough, you can almost sort of feel it with him as he's as he's got these two or three or multiple different parts of himself sort of pulling against each other. Yeah, yeah. He's he's George Martin really is good at writing conflicted characters that make you experience their conflict, isn't he? You know, mm. it, it, there's some characters that you could just write off, um, but there's other characters that you really stick with. Um, and and the Hound is rapidly becoming one of those for me. Yeah. So he leaves, and he leaves his white cloak behind. And um, and that's the, that's the that's sort of the last thing that Sansa has from him, mm. um, it seems. And and this is the last person Sansa sees until Sedontus arrives. You know her um, her supposed savior, mm. um, and he he brings news that the battle the Lannisters have won the battle. Um, yeah. At the last minute, something's happened. It, it appear, apparently, there's there's this massive relief force which has arrived, which has included. Do you remember those lords who hadn't gone over to Stannis of the Tyrrells? So you have the Mace Tyrrell oh, and Randall right. Tarly. Yeah. Um, there's them. It's that force, and apparently it's been led by Renly, which you think, well, that can't possibly have yeah. <laughs> possibly have happened, surely. Yeah. Um, but regardless of the sort of the inconsistencies in the story, it's obvious that something's happened, and it's, it's some kind of game-changing moments happened, and and the battle swung back in the Lannisters' favour. Yeah. And Sedontos sort of dances around the room, and and he shouts. Um, in sort of joy, oh, to be a knight, and about the glory of it. I just thought that was quite interesting in contrast to um, what we've just experienced with the Hound, who obviously, no matter what, one of his basic things is he doesn't want to be a knight Mm. because he hates everything it stands for. And then you have this former knight who wishes he was back like that because he loves everything it stands for. And and it's really really interesting. Yeah, it really is. and um, I thought this was a bit of a it, in the TV series. I thought this was a bit of a weird moment of like because it's in the TV series. It's Tywin Lannister, isn't it? Who strolls in and is like that's yeah, the reveal yeah. at the end. Is just like oh they've turned up. It's all over. I understand. Mm. You know you've run out of budget and so on. So fine, we waited out. I thought that was a real misstep in the TV series. And then not in the book. Not only is it that sort of like oh it's all finished moment but it's in an even fucking weirder way at least in the tv series the person doing it is still alive you know whereas whereas here this is apparently a zombie george martin once again decides to turn the compass of the good ship a song of ice and fire due zombie and um i don't know are you interested in seeing a zombie renly Well, I, th- I suppose the question is: Is it a zombie Renly? Yeah. 
it, it, it asks more questions. Somebody than walking answers, behind this. his corpse, waving his arms around, going, "I'm King Renly. Everybody, listen to me." <laughs> well, I I think you could. Uh, maybe we find out later what it is, but it, it could be the zombie. I mean, wouldn't it not be on the wrong rounds of possibility, considering what we've read before yeah. about freaky things happening? That this is a zombie Renly. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know, it could be you get these confused reports, especially in medieval warfare, mm. about what's happened and who's won, and rumours sprout up in the ground as you know as as quickly as as anything else. And maybe we're going to have to wait a bit longer to sort of pull apart the the truth from the myth here. That's the the only other possibility. Yeah, well, and I think that's true, isn't it? Because, you know, George Martin might be a tease, but he's not an idiot. Eventually, this line will go explained. Um, (laughs) Eventually, mine. Well, look, that's the the end of Blackwater. Um, And that means there is one more... uh, of these Shartliver Royals uh, to to get to the end of A Clash of Kings. So for next week, all you need to do is read to the end of the book. Quite quite obvious, isn't it? Mm. So um, so you just you just pick up where we left off, um, which is Daenerys starting. Uh, she broke her fast with something like that, and uh, and read to the end, and we'll cover that next week. But yeah, Dave, that's Blackwater. That's Blackwater, Matt, and what a hell of a place it is. Yeah, what a ride. What a ride. That was great. That's, you know, I'm more of that please, George. Yeah. If you've uh, if you've any thoughts on Blackwater, on what we've experienced, um or you know the differences between the film and the book or uh, any any other um thing you want you want to talk about with regards to this part of the book, you can get your comments in to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us. We're on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil, Dave. We are. It's true, isn't it? It's true. I've seen it myself. Never a truer word spoken. Seen on that Twitter. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, happy reading for the next uh, next parts, and uh, join us next time when we'll be rounding off the uh, the whole book, A Clash of Kings, by George R. R. Martin. It's been a hell of a ride so far, and. Um, there are a few more surprises yet before we get to the end of the book. <gasps> surprises? I can't bah, wait. Bah, bah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you then. Awesome, players. <laughs>